I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. On this episode of the Faith in Teaching podcast, I'm talking to Robert J. Keeley, who is a professor of education at Calvin University and a visiting professor of discipleship and faith formation at Calvin Theological Seminary. He's written a number of things in the area of children's uh, faith formation, and uh, and he's also a good friend of mine. So it's, uh, it's it's good to have a chat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. So, so part of what prompted this uh, this conversation was a new book that you've got out. It's called Bridging Theory and Practice in Children's Spirituality, with the subtitle New Directions for Education, Ministry, and Discipleship. And you say in the introduction that, that this book, Children, uh, Bridging Theory and Practice in Children's Spirituality, came out of the Children's Spirituality Summit. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So the, the Children's Spirituality Summit has been happening for a about 15 years or so, perhaps longer than that. Uh, as I get older, my grasp on how long ago things were has, has uh, failed me. But a group of scholars who experienced uh, a conference in Europe said that they thought we should have one in, in North America. And so they got together and put it on at uh, in the Chicago area. I was uh, fortunate to have attended the very first one. And so um, I found it a place that was unique in, um, in these sorts of gatherings. Many of the gatherings around faith formation are aimed at either just at, uh, at church folk who, who often have limited training or just at academics who, who don't often get down to the nuts and bolts of what ministry looks like. And this, uh, this conference, which later became uh, renamed as the Summit, did both. And that really uh, fit me very well because I, I'm an academic, but I also do ministry in, uh, in my home church. And so I'm interested in both aspects of it. And a lot of my work has been aimed at equipping those who actually do ministry rather than just moving the, the academic conversation forward. So this, this conference then has happened uh, every three years for a number of years. Uh, the last one was now three years ago, covid Put uh, put a damper on last year's, and uh, this year we, it will be online. So that's uh, that's end of May, twenty twenty one. Yes, May twenty fourth through twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. So if if this gets posted before that, uh, I invite your listeners to to come and join us because because our expenses are so low because it's online. It's a real bargain this year. So so how did you get from the Children's Spirituality Summit, the the gathering of people to discuss? current work in this area to this particular book? Uh, every year since the, so it started, there's been a conference book. And uh, I, I've served on the board for the last six or seven years. And the board president usually asks someone from the board to be the editor for the, the next book. And she asked Mimi Larson, who is at Wheaton uh, College, to do it. And as Mimi was uh, was thinking about the book during the conference, because you always sort of have an eye on how is this going to fit together into a book, she uh, and I talked. Uh, we've, we've become friends over the years of working together, and we've collaborated on a few things. 
and uh, and she uh, noted a book that I had edited a number of years ago called Shaped by God, and she thought that that served as a good model for what this book should be like, rather than just a conference book, a book that actually tried to tell a coherent story. And so uh, she asked if I would like to join her as a co-editor, and I uh, I gladly said yes. We uh, we spent a month writing a book proposal, sent it out, and Zondervan picked it up. And so uh, so we dove right in and and uh, asked people to submit chapters and took it from there. So in a moment, I want to dive into one of the chapters and, and get really concrete. But uh, I'm curious about how this fits into the just the larger area of research on children's spirituality. Is this is this an area where things are coming out regularly? How does this relate to uh, to what's already there? Yeah, that's an interesting phrase, research on children's spirituality, because uh, you get things that are that are published for children all the time, especially from curriculum publishers. But they those folks appear to have very little conversation with academics who are writing about this and people who are doing research. And so there have been relatively few books over the last uh, few years that have come out about this topic. And uh, the field is small enough that when they come out, we, we tend to know the players already. So, so there's a lot of stuff being written. Much of it has little to do with research. And in, in fact, there's a, a bit of a divide between what, uh, what many of us in academia see as what ought to be the main thrust of teaching with regard to faith formation and what many curricula do, especially with regard to moralizing stories and, and using character traits of biblical, char- biblical heroes, as it were, to, to be someone to emulate. A lot of the curricula really emphasize that. And, and those of us in the academic field think that's not a good idea. Oh, why would that not be a good idea? Can you, can you encapsulate that briefly? Well, first of all, I don't think that's the purpose of the the Bible stories, right? Uh, I think it's very easy for us to to mix up Bible uh, narratives with fables. Uh, Aesop's fables, for example, were written in order to get to the end where you can say, and so the moral of the story is uh, slow and steady wins the race or something like that. And so, so when we see a Bible story, we tend to think, okay, there's got to be a lesson here. It's got to be a moral. So we get to, um, to stories that, and, and I think this is where we're going to be going soon, stories that, that can be difficult. And you say, well, then what's, what's the lesson? And that can be really problematic. Uh, an, another problem with it is that the, the research of Christian Smith, uh, who was at Notre Dame, who is the director of the National Study of Youth and Religion, he's done a longitudinal study starting... Uh, again, at least 10 years ago, uh, on teens and their religious practices. And he discovered that the majority of uh, United States teens have what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism as their primary belief system. Uh, In other words, God really just cares about uh, how we behave. And if if we're good enough, we get to heaven. And you don't need to look very far in contemporary culture to realize that that's exactly what people think the church teaches. And it turns out the church actually does teach that when they're not really doing it well. 
And so that sort of moralizing in stories really leads into that very nicely. Mm -hmm. So I I was really struck by the title of your chapter, which was about uh, teaching hard stories in the Bible. Yeah. Because I, I was reminded of when when one of my own kids was was quite young and uh, complained one week that they didn't want to go to Sunday school anymore. And when we talked about it, they they it turned out it wasn't because they had a bad attitude to church per se. It was that they were getting the same six stories over and over again, and they felt like they had a pretty good grasp of them. Right? That they kind of uh, you know they already knew the Good Samaritan and, and David and Goliath and, and Noah's Ark and so on. And that was sort of well, is there anything else uh, that I could hear because I know these stories already? So, so I, I I was intrigued by this idea of of asking how we go about teaching stories to young children that seem harder. So why why would some stories seem harder than others? I mean, a lot of people die in Noah's Ark, yet that that seems to sort of hang around. Right. Uh, but we really usually don't tell it in a way that that makes kids notice that. Right. We, we tend to tell it with uh, with cute pictures of of giraffes sticking their neck out of the window of the Ark and those sorts of things. Right. And even even Samson's story, which which has lots of difficult things in it. Uh, I mean, he gets his eyes gouged out. I mean, the whole thing starts off with sex. It's 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 something that uh, is is hard for adults to understand, right? Because if we have that mindset of what's our lesson here, then then what is the lesson of the story of Samson or or any of the stories of Samson, right? When he ties the fox's tails together and birds up the field, what are we supposed to take from that? And that's a, that's a real challenge. So, so what makes the stories hard is, first of all, the, the teachers can be uncomfortable talking about uh, sex or violence with children. And that's perfectly understandable. And I'm not suggesting that we tell uh, the story of Judah and Tamar to first graders, for example. I think there's appropriate times and places to introduce those stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, there's also a difficulty in trying to determine what to make of it. And because even though we don't want to, to say, so here's how to behave, or here's, here's a moral to put at the end of the story, we still are left scratching our heads and saying, so why is this here? Right? What, what is there about this story that God wanted us to know? And I, I find that, that often we need to step back and take a bigger view. We, we tend to take these, uh, pericopes, these little chunks of scripture and treat them as independent things. And that often leads us, I think, to, to, to lessons or understandings of those stories that actually are not quite what the, the original author had in mind when he was putting it in there. So if these stories are actually, um, if this is driven, maybe not even just by it being hard for the students, but this is just hard for teachers, right? They make us feel uncomfortable <laughs> or, we, or we don't quite know enough or we're not confident of what the answer is or whatever. So, so why go to all the trouble? Why not just stick with the easy ones? Well, first of all, we have children like your children who say, isn't there more than this? And the answer is there is more than this. There's a lot more than this. Uh, anyone who has spent any serious time looking at the Bible realizes that the, the more you dig into it, the deeper the hole needs to be for you to get a, a handle on what's going on. It's, uh, it's really a fascinating uh, book, which just gets more fascinating with, 
with each new new pass at it. And so, uh, so partly, I also would like to to blame your your children's teachers, right? If <laughs> if, if they're not finding something new in in David and Goliath, then it's hard for the kids to feel like there's something new there too. But uh, I don't want to put too much blame on the teachers. Uh, yeah, there's a limit to how many years in a row you need David and Goliath. So um, in, in, in your chapter, you, you talk about one of the benefits of, of difficult stories in terms of the kind of the mental templates that they give for, uh, for children. And I thought you, you had a fascinating example of why that might matter for children's learning. Yeah. So I, I ran across a study. I got this from a couple of my colleagues in the sciences who have done some work in teaching and learning. A study that, that's done by a joint group of, of Chinese and American uh, researchers. And they were looking at the, the idea of critical thinking. And that's one of the buzzwords in education, right? We, we need to teach our kids how to do critical thinking or those sorts of things. And as a former math teacher, I remember, even as a, as a student, a high school student, hearing that uh, studying geometry would teach me how to think. And it turned out it didn't, right? All the research on, uh, on Euclidean geometry, doing proofs and that sort of stuff actually did not help. Uh, students thinking. And this falls along the same same path as that. So in this research, they gave students a story, uh, a story very similar to the Hansel and Gretel story that required, in order to solve the puzzle, you had to, to drop pebbles and then find your way back out of a cave. And it turned out that the American students solved it at a significantly greater uh, percentage than the Chinese students did. And when you just hear that, you think, well, you know, American education must teach critical thinking better than Chinese education. But then they gave another story where it, it required uh, students to realize that in order to weigh an irregular object, you could, or find the mass of an irregular object, you could uh, immerse it in water and look at the amount of water that's displaced. And it turned out the Chinese students did much better on that question than the American students. The, the difference is that American students know a story called Hansel and Gretel. The Chinese students, for the most part, don't. The Chinese students know uh, a story called Weighing an Elephant. The American students don't. And, uh, and what students were doing in order to solve those puzzles was not developing some brand new way of doing it. They were taking information that they had and applying it to an analogous situation. So critical thinking, it would suggest is not really critical thinking, it's analogous thinking. We need more of those data points, more of those stories to help us understand uh, how to attack problems. So what is then a faith problem? Well, they come in all different sorts of uh, shapes and sizes, right? But if, if we have some of these challenging stories, they're, they're like faith problems. Uh, in the chapter, I use the story of Judah and Tamar, where, um, to, to make a medium-sized story even shorter, Judah's sons uh, married a woman named Tamar. I said sons, plural. First son married her, died before they could have children. Second son married her, died before they could have children. Judah sends, sends Tamar away rather than give his third son to Tamar. Uh, after waiting much longer than she should have, she decides to take matters into her own hands, dresses as a prostitute, and convinces her um, her father-in-law to sleep with her when she's in disguise. He does that. She becomes pregnant. 
Judah takes her into his household and saying, you're more righteous than I am. And she gives birth to twins who are in the line of Christ. That's a story that I like to use with my students. To con- At the end, I say, and the moral of the story is, and they just look at me because they have no idea where to go with that. And and that's the kind of story that that lives with us. And, and sort of, at least for me, it, it kept nagging at me. You know, why is this story here? What's, what's going on here? And um, I started thinking of it as a, a story about grace, how uh, there's brokenness in the world and things happen. Things happen to the people who are responsible for this particular act of brokenness and the people who aren't. So, uh, so Judah's sons are the ones who are, are not behaving themselves well, and neither is Judah. And, and poor Tamar is, is left with the, the results of that, uh, that brokenness. But God inserts himself into our brokenness and brings grace to a, a situation. He gives our children, and those children end up being the, the, uh, the grandparents of, of David and then of, of Christ. That helps me as I think about things that are going on in this world today. It's still not neat and tidy, right? I can't give you a, a 20 second answer as to why COVID has come to the world, but uh, it allows me to, to step back and look for where God is bringing grace to a broken situation. So, so what the, just dwelling on the Chinese and American students for a moment. Yeah. So you say what, what they're both doing here is they're using a, familiar story structure as a mental template for problem solving right for for sort of figuring out how to deal with the next situation yeah. um and and to connect that with earlier you were suggesting what we most often tend to do with bible stories is to try to turn them into a moral template like what's the what's the right moral answer so you, so is what you're suggesting here with a sort of a shift in how we think about how the bible stories are templates like what what kind of what kind of problem they might help students to solve not just a not just a moral problem about how to be good that, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, it's an, another way of putting it is we we want to ask different questions of the stories, right? Instead of asking, so now, what do we learn about how we should behave? We ask, what do we learn about God? Uh, and, and God is the hero of all of these biblical narratives. And every once in a while, we really have to think hard <laughs> to find out what we learn about God in this story. And sometimes we need to step back, right? I think in order to understand the end of the book of Judges, for example, we need to put it in the whole arc of what's going on in the story of Israel and see that things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that that's the point at which there's a, there's a turn, right? Uh, I love that the little story of Ruth comes right after, after the book of Judges. There's, there's still a light in Israel and it's in Bethlehem. And, and then Samuel shows up and he opens the door to the, to the tabernacle and and God starts speaking to the people of Israel again. It's it's a cool moment. So any 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 advice for someone who knows that next week they've got to lead Sunday school, they've got to lead chapel or class devotions at school, and they're thinking that maybe they don't want to go with the Good Samaritan for the twenty seventh time in the last two <laughs> years, um, but they're not sure how to how to sort of set about preparing. What would you? Where would you suggest someone start? Uh, I would suggest they start with the, the question, so what does this help me learn about God? I would also uh, suggest that if possible, try to live with the story a little bit longer than the night before or the morning of the, 
the lesson. Because uh, as you continue to read these stories and think about them, you see them in new ways. You, you, you'll read things and, and notice things that you've, you've read past. You know, you've just sort of skipped over. Um, the story of the rich young man who says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? I don't know how many times I read that before I thought, well, wait a minute. What do I have to do to inherit something? Nothing, <laughs> right? Uh, and then even after I, I started thinking about it that way, then there's this section where Jesus said, you know, he says, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus, instead of starting with his answer, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. But I just thought Jesus was just being a, a bit of a pain to the guy uh, trying, to, trying to, to get at him. But I realized that I think this is, that whole story is about grace. And, and we tend to read it as, um, as other things, right? Especially when right after that, there's this whole section on a rich person going, getting into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, well, that's really hard. He says, yeah, for, for people, it's hard, but God can do things. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how, do we, how do we read that and miss it for 40 years? <laughs> so, we, so we've zoomed in, we're, we're drawing to, to the end of our time. We've zoomed in on, on, on one chapter in here, your piece here on, on reading hard stories, which I yeah. recommend people to, to take a look at, sharing hard stories with children. There are 16 chapters in the book. So we've, uh, we've just used up almost all of our time talking about one sixteenth of the book. <laughs> Um, so just any other quick examples of highlights, like other things that people would find that might be intriguing or useful to them if they were to, to dip into this volume? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. Uh, there are a couple of chapters here that have been, uh, that have really have gotten good response from people. I had the opportunity to, to share this book with people who were actually in ministry last summer during a course uh, through Calvin Seminary. And, uh, and I had recorded interviews with each of the, the authors. And so, so we've had a chance to talk about all these with people. And one of the chapters that really resonates with people is uh, The Role of Faith in Spirituality in a Child's Response to Grief and Loss by Shelley Malia. Uh, Shelley is a, a professor in Texas. She starts with, uh, with saying, I received a phone call that no one ever wants to get. Her husband was killed in a car accident, and she had to go and pick up her two children and, and tell them. Well, right away, uh, the story is gripping and she, she, uh, she both presents things as a, as a professional who works with children in grief and trauma and as a parent who has had to, to deal with it. And that combination is just really powerful. And so uh, reading that chapter is, is really uh, striking. I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, that I got to I would say edit it. I didn't have to do much. Uh, it, it came in. It was just really outstanding. Uh, there's also a, a couple of chapters on uh, people who are often at the margins of, certainly at the margins of white Christianity, right? There's a couple of chapters on um, and working with people of color. And, and again, an, art, uh, an author who is able to, to bring her personal story in with what she's done professionally, Karen Williams, uh, called Coloring Outside the Lines, a conversation about racial diversity and the spiritual lives of children is is just really uh, powerful and outstanding, as well as Eric Carter's uh, chapter on believing and belonging, embracing children with disabilities. 
Eric Carter's at Vanderbilt University, and uh, and yeah, those those are the chapters that that stuck out to me. But as I read through them, I keep finding other things to like here yeah. as well. So, as you just have heard, the range of topics there: grief, disability, diversity. Uh, we've just been talking about. We've just been talking about difficult Bible stories, um, how we deal with with, uh, with with uncomfortable themes in Scripture. There's more in here too. There are chapters on on play, um, uh, chapters on, uh, on on children and theology, um, spiritual direction. Uh, so, if you're working with with young children um, and uh, in, in connection with their with their faith, uh, this is a book that you might want to take a look at. Again, the title is Bridging Theory and Practice. In children's spirituality, new directions for education, ministry, and discipleship. It's edited by Mimi Larson and Robert Keeley, uh, and it's published by Zondervan. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for the conversation. Um, I hope that this helps some people uh, find the book and uh, and get some current wisdom on on how we ought to be approaching uh, interfacing with with young children around around questions of faith. Thanks so much, David. It was fun to talk to with you. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.